Ladies and gentlemen, the Cooper and Anthony Show. These people are obviously total lunatics. <laughs> Muy comico. I'm all pissed off today. I'm all like up in arms this week. Uh, why now? You know, it's on behalf of Olivia Wilde, who, you know, let me just, in case people don't know, I love Olivia Wilde so much that before she became a director, before she started doing House. Real, real films, no, when she was on House, I went back and I watched House not from the beginning, just the episodes with 13. I watched only her episodes. That's all I cared about. Mm-hmm. I rewatched just the Olivia Wilde episodes. And then I had one weekend that I did like a full... Olivia Wilde film archive kind of thing. And and I mean, she had some terrible films and some things that just were not good at all. I watched Alpha Dog. I watched Touristas. I watched Bobby Z. I watched, uh, she had a horror film. Yeah, she had this terrible horror film that she did um, called Deadfall. I watched The Woods. I watched In Time. I mean, just like one terrible Cowboys and Aliens, like one really bad Olivia Wilde film after another because I love her so much. I just wanted to see her over and over. Mm -hmm. So by the time she became a director and by the time she started doing, you know, you see a lot of these TV stars kind of go nowhere. You never see them again. Not her. She became a director. She directed Booksmart, which of course I saw more than once. You know, that's how I first fell in love with Beanie Feldstein. You know, I just love Olivia Wilde. So now she's working on this film that she's directed called Don't Worry Darling. And it's getting a lot of press because she started dating one of the co-stars, Harry Styles. I mean, you you know she's dating Harry Styles. That's no big deal. She's 10 years older than he is. Mm-hmm. So I'm already like, icon, love her. But so the film is going really well. They seem to have a really good relationship and you're following them around. The first thing that happens is Florence Pugh. Do you know who she is? No idea. That's my point. You have no idea who she is. She is an actress who was in Black Widow and like, I don't know, Little Women. Nobody nobody that you would ever know. Mm-hmm. She became famous, in my opinion, because she was dating Zach Braff. She was like 22. Zach Braff was like 45. Mm-hmm. And she made this really big deal. She went on Instagram and like defended him. All the people that were like, what are you doing dating a grandpa? Why are you dating an old man? Or he's so ugly. She defended him. She told everybody to fuck off. Everybody who was on her Instagram, all the haters, like, this is my boyfriend, you know, screw you. So now Olivia Wilde casts her as the star of Don't Worry Darlings. Instead of being like, thank you. You're really famous. Your boyfriend is really famous. I'm so glad to be the star of this film that's getting all this press before it even comes out. Instead, Florence Pugh comes out and says, oh, it was awful. She started dating Harry Styles. We were on the film. It was really annoying. And of course, she made sure to pay him more than she paid me. I only made $700,000 for the film. He made $3 million. First of all, the whole budget of the film was $3 million, So there's no way he got... That's the stupidest thing. How would she know how much he got paid, first of mm-hmm. all? Second of all, she made the biggest deal about the fact that, you know, there's the gender wage gap and all that stuff. It's like, bitch, that's Olivia Wilde. She's been fighting against parody and gender wage gap in film and television longer than you've been in this industry. So 
it was just they asked Olivia Wilde about it and she was like you know it's sad that she would come out and say any of this stuff because it's simply untrue and people love to find gossip because they're bored but not only is none of it true like how about thank you how about no one knows who the fuck you are I put you in this major film as the star and instead of thank you you're out there telling people that uh, I'm a misogynist and a sexist mm. so that's the first thing that pissed me off today because you know how, again <laughs> oh, you, know how I more? Feel, you know how I feel about Olivia Wilde <laughs> yes there is more great so Olivia Wilde just busy living her Olivia Wilde life you know breaks up with Jason Sudeikis she'd gone out with him they had two kids together I don't think they ever got married I think that they were just partners quote unquote mm. so they have two kids together and they're co-parenting and they're like the icons of healthy co-parenting suddenly well no I guess they did get married because she wants to, she files for divorce mm-hmm. but he served her papers while she was speaking at a speaking engagement for one of the cons like I don't know Comic-Con Comic-Con Santa-Con something con I don't know what one of the cons but (laughs) not Santa-Con but one of those (laughs) (laughs) horror-com something (laughs) yeah something (laughs) she's up there as a female director in an industry that has very few female directors talking about being a female director talking about her new film Don't Worry Darling that hasn't come out yet with starring Florence Pugh and her boyfriend Harry Styles Mm mm-hmm and while she's on stage, Jason Sudeikis serves her with papers. Serves her divorce papers. There's video of it, of her standing there in the middle of a sentence, and some idiot hands her a manila envelope while she's on stage. Instead of just putting it down and thinking that, oh, it's probably a script, she actually, I think she looks at it at one point. It completely throws her off, and... She's she didn't say anything about it until now. Now she's come out and said, "This is why I'm divorcing him. This is the reason. There he there's there's the pettiness. There's the person that I knew and hated, basically. Somebody mm-hmm. that would bring somebody into this moment that I'm having as one of the only female directors in an industry that has very few female directors, and he has to take down my moment with this pettiness of paperwork that could have been given to me at any point in any time he made sure to do it when i'm on this big world stage and the real victims here are our eight-year-old and five-year-old children who now are going to see this video and see this is how their their father handled divorcing their mother it's the guy who serves the paper it's not the father it's the guy who serves the papers the douchebag he could have waited until she got off the stage he didn't have to do it right then uh jason sudeikis probably said to him you need to give these papers to her while she's out there. When she gets off stage, she's going to run out into a car and you'll never see her again. You'll never you'll never have access to her. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. If, when you're famous, it's really hard to have access as a as a paper server person. As, yeah, as somebody because who you says, can't get close to them. That's the point. So, so what this guy did... Now, here's the other thing that Olivia Wilde explained. She said at this con where she was talking... Santa, Santa Con. con. Santa Con. <laughs> <laughs> She's the only one not in an elf costume. <laughs> um, she said, this was a very specific event where you had to ha- have had a COVID test within a certain amount of hours before coming. You had to, yeah. Have a Darth Maul ha- uh, mask. <laughs> <laughs> right. Are you Olivia Bond? Yes. 
I have these papers for you. Here, take my Manila envelope. I can't understand you. You have a Darth Maul mask. Yes, I'm here to serve you papers. <laughs> but that's pretty much what happened. And you had a you had to buy a ticket ahead of time. You got a bracelet to be allowed in. It was a whole process just getting into this event where she's speaking. So this paper server person had to do all this. And Jason Sudeikis knew that this person had to, had to do it because the tickets were not cheap. Somebody mm. had to pay the $150. It wasn't going to be the paper server guy. It was going to be Jason Santa Sudeikis. Santa Con ain't cheap. Santa Con ain't cheap, especially when <laughs> Olivia Wilde is speaking, the, the goddess herself. So, you know, and Jason Sudeikis is like, well, you know, it's not, it's not up to me where the guy serves the paper. Yes, it is up to you. You told him where she'd be. And that she would be getting off stage and into a car and shuttled away and she wasn't going to have access to her. You told him this was his only opportunity and you humiliated her. And this made national, international news, in fact. I saw this on the Daily Mail as well. This made international news that you humiliated her Hmm. publicly just to serve her fucking divorce papers. So I just, uh, my heart goes out to Olivia Wilde, who is having a... Listen, she said, I have a great life. Everything's amazing. I have two great kids. I'm very lucky to have the career I have. I have a wonderful relationship. So I'm not complaining, but I'm complaining on her behalf as a one of the only female directors in an industry that has so few female directors. Yeah, that was a douchebag move. But he had a Darth Maul mask and he had to go yeah. there at some point. Uh, and those things are expensive. Those Comic-Con whatever things. Because Mad Monster Party is coming this weekend to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And I want to go, but it's $75 a ticket. Right. And that's Mad Monster whatever in Charlotte. You would think that would be like a $5 ticket. So you can imagine the whatever con where she was speaking. I mean, it was money to get in plus an additional fee to go hear her and speak to her. And, and I think it's, it was a Q&A afterwards. You really want to go to Mad Monster because they have such stars this weekend as Butch Patrick from the Munsters. Okay. The little kid. Uh-huh. He He's there. Uh, Ola Ray is going to be there. Who's that? That's the girl from the Thriller video. Uh, what? There's a girl in the Thriller video? I thought it's just Michael Jackson and a bunch of monsters. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's chasing a girl around. She's going to be there. Uh-huh. So she's getting paid. Ted Raimi, Sam Raimi's brother. <laughs> so, it's Sam Raimi's brother? Yeah, Ted's going to be there. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, fr- I'm friends with Julia Roberts' sister, Lisa. Do you want to meet her? I mean, she's got nothing to say. <laughs> the guy who... I mean, pl- I think so, but you wouldn't like her. Who plays Tales from the Crypt, Crypt Keeper? Uh-huh. He, he's going to be there. Okay. And, and two of the clowns from Killer Clowns from Outer Space. But that could be anybody, because you just put clown makeup on somebody. That's like Marshmallow. You and I used to make fun of Marshmallow, because <laughs> anybody could be under that head. <laughs> yeah, because the girl from Thriller ain't going to look like Thriller Girl now. No, but who cares? Why do you want to talk to her? What has she got to say? <laughs> you want to take your picture, and you got to pay like 50 bucks to take a, a photo with these people. But I've never heard of them, and they've aged so much, you'd have to explain who they are. If I got to pay to take a picture of you, I better not have to explain to anybody looking at that picture who you are. Dick Warlock's going to be there. Who's that? He was Michael Myers in Halloween 2 and 3. 
All right. So that was like 40 years ago. Uh huh. <laughs> so he's the guy in the mask. He's like, I was in the mask. No, you weren't. Yes, <laughs> right. I that's was. What I, that's what I'm saying. Unless he's got the mask on, I don't care. <laughs> Jake, just some guy. The you could be anybody. Roberts is going to be there. He's a wrestler from the 80s. Uh huh. And Ted Raimi. So you got to, and another clown, Mike Mirandez, who plays one of the clowns. He's going to be there. So if I meet Ted Raimi and I pay for that, can we call Sam Raimi while we're there? <laughs> or, or, or is Sam not taking Ted's calls these days? <laughs> Are you ready? Thank you. Then brace yourself. She's not pretty. I mean, that sounds bad, but whatever. It's the Cooper and Anthony Show. How do you pick the song of the summer? Ooh, that's tough because this summer... There wasn't really a lot of great music. This summer wasn't as united as other summers because it's still pandemic times. You should have thought about this, I don't know, a couple of months ago because it's almost the song of the end of summer. Right, it's too late now. So Patton Oswald went on Twitter today and he officially called the song of the summer. At the end of the summer. It's almost September, but go ahead, Patton. (laughs) So he went out and said, this is the song of the summer. And... You're going to hate me because the minute I play this, it's going to get stuck in your head. I doubt it, but go ahead. No, it is. It's by a Detroit rapper called GMAC Cash. Uh Uh-huh. There's a big slide in Detroit, and he wrote a song about the slide. On the giant slide. This this is the song of the summer. Hey, you can break your back. On the giant slide. What? This is a joke, right? I like the this. idea of the song of a summer. It has to be something that everybody knows. This giant slide. My kids get on my nerves, so I send them to the giant slide. Yeah, no. Funny. Great. Love it. Patton Oswald. But you don't like this? Well, I just don't really understand why this would be. I mean, you know, you gotta you gotta pick something like Lizzo to be loved. You know, something that everybody knows. Slide. Or, or how about um, Kate Bush running up that hill? You know what I mean? From that's a, that's a song Stranger Things. 86. No, but from Stranger Things. Doja Cat Woman. That's a good it's one. A, it's not as good as Giant Slide. What about Jack Harlow, First Class? Giant Slide. <laughs> yeah. I love this I guess, song. I guess what I'm saying is it really, really should be a song that... Um, Everybody knows. <laughs> this is not going to earworm me. I will never think of this song again. You're going to be you're going to be walking around the house going giant slide. No, I'm literally going to walk away from this segment right now and never think about this again. This <laughs> giant slide. I want to go on giant slide now. No. We'll be there alone. <laughs> GMAC Cash will be there with me. Okay. And Patton Oswald. <laughs> I love this show. That's right. Oh, no, she did not. I want us all to listen carefully. It's the Cooper and Anthony Show. 
We are super excited to have joining us a cultural historian and biographer. Those are two words Anthony has never heard of. But also author. Now there's a word Anthony knows. <laughs> His latest book, Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. And there are two versions. There's an adult version and a YA version, which we'll get to in just a second. But first, please welcome Bob Batchelor to the show. Hi, Bob. Hello, thank you. I guess we're going to have to do a lot of the defining of, of words for Anthony. <laughs> I know Stan Lee. Uh, that's the, and, and book. I got that much. Okay, so before we get to the two different versions and your writing process and you explain to Anthony what a cultural historian is, um, what made you want to write about Stan Lee? I mean, what don't we know about him already? I feel like there have been so many books written about him and there's been a lot to say. So what new thing is there to say about Stanley that you found that you were able to write two books about? My personal history with Stanley goes back to when I was four years old and I actually taught myself to read so that I could read Spider-Man comic books. My uncle was a little older than me and gave me Spider-Man comic books. So um, being the overachiever I am, I, I taught myself to read and, and for a kid growing up really poor in Western Pennsylvania, Stan Lee felt like my long lost uncle or something. So I've had a lifelong fascination with Stan Lee. And what I would say is when my first biography came out on Stan Lee in 2017, he was still alive. And based on some of the unfortunate things that happened toward the end of his life, there was a lot more still that, that kind of to come out. And so given that this is the anniversary, the 100th stand would have been 100 years old this year, I decided this would be a perfect opportunity. I was still meeting people, and Cooper, you know this as an author, I was still meeting people years after I wrote the book who said to me, you wrote a book on Stan Lee? And I'm like, well, clearly, clearly I need to write another book on Stan Lee, updating it and bringing it up to um, current times. And, and so it's been a passion project. And depending on how geeky you want to get, like there's a lot of fanboy weirdness with Stan Lee and, and, but people love him. So I, I felt there was still a lot more to say. Did you learn anything new about Stan Lee while researching and writing this book that even you didn't previously know? Well, I had known quite a bit about the elder care abuses. I knew some people who were intimately involved in that, but as I explored it, I mean, you think about somebody like Stan Lee, who arguably was worth anywhere from 100 to $300 million when he passed away. The end of his life was such a sad kind of journey. And so those things were new, and I was able to uncover some new information there. Sadly for Stan, when his wife, and like so many creatives, and certainly so many creative people who grew up in the uh, Great Depression era, Stan had kind of outsourced his business side to his wife, and she made a lot of the decisions. She was a power broker behind the scenes, and she passed away. And then after she passed away, there were people around him that were able to get close to him that did not have his best interests at heart, and they were essentially robbing him blind. And so, yeah, just a very sad story. A group of people who knew Stan got the Los Angeles Police Department involved, and so the last couple, the last year or so of his life were just sad. His health was deteriorating and people were taking advantage of him. So 
he had one daughter and she um, wasn't a source of, of comfort or help from what I can uncover. I don't know her personally, so I don't like to necessarily speak ill, but um, you can Google her name and read it for yourself. Yes, it was just, you know, it was messy. And she grew up um, in a very different era. And since Stan lived so long, by the time he was older, she was already in her 60s and she had never really worked. Um, I think we would label her entitled by today's standards. And when the mom passed away, you know, it happens. I've seen it happen in families where you think one parent is the power broker or has the control. But when somebody else passes away, you realize, oh, OK, so all along it was really that person holding everything together. His wife, Joni, was the glue. When she went away, the family dissipated pretty rapidly and some really nefarious characters got into the scene because they took advantage of a person who wasn't or no longer capable of making very clear judgments. The money now, where is it? Who knows? There are so many, yeah, so many mysteries around Stan Lee's The End of His Life. If you listen to certain people, there are warehouses in Los Angeles with um, drawings that some of the famous Marvel artists did back to the 60s. Um, there are supposedly Stan Lee treasures that another sycophant went off with. Um, and then probably the bulk of the money went to his daughter, but he had set up a trust. And so I think if you really unravel this like a forensic detective, probably there's an estate manager, an attorney that that dictates where the money is. And but he only had um, a single daughter. So it's a it's a strange, sad story for somebody who grew up incredibly poor in the Depression era in New York City and really was able to carve his life out of out of very little to begin with and and so to see such a sad ending is is a it's a strange twist on this great american success story that we all see stan lee embodying so why did marvel protect him didn't they have some responsibility there it was a strange relationship with marvel as well toward the end you know stan if you look at him as an actor as a cameo actor he's one of the most successful actors of all time being in these great marvel blockbusters that that everybody in the world has seen and everybody knows his face but Stan never owned Marvel. He never owned really even that like shares in Marvel. He was always a gun for hire. And so for any of you out there listening who are gig workers or freelancers, or you do things very specifically for money, this was Stan Lee's um, life for much of his life. He, yeah, he definitely, definitely worked for the company most of his life but he was an employee he was not the owner and so a lot of the things that people think about stan lee's money they're not necessarily true now of course he did he did make a lot of money he's worth a lot of money and and was a powerful individual in the in the comic book in the entertainment industry but marvel kind of um they didn't wash their hands of him, but they certainly didn't step in to help him toward the end of his life. Yeah, yeah. Even if they could have, it wasn't as if he were um, suffering from 
dementia or serious Alzheimer. He still had his fa faculties. He was just going downhill. You know, it was like a, a two-year process where he's his faculties are diminishing. And it's not the money that he made in the past. I mean, 300 years from now, his estate is still going to be making money. But probably not as much as you would imagine, because since he didn't own Marvel or own the characters, like Marvel owns all those characters or whoever Marvel outsourced the characters to. So it's not as if Stan got repetitive royalties, you know, or his estate. You know, if this book sells a million copies, a hundred years from now, my heirs will get the the money from that because I own the copyright. But Stan never owned the copyright on Spider-Man, Iron Man, any of them. It really was, well, back then it was very draconian rules about what was considered work for hire. And it's fascinating, the questions that, that are generated from this conversation, because this these are the things that people really believe about Stan Lee. And the reason that I subtitled the book, The Man Behind Marvel, is because what I wanted people to understand is that Stan was like the ultimate company man because of his bad experiences watching his pop father suffer through the depression. His father couldn't get work. And so Stan, from that era, like maybe like Norman Mailer or John Updike, they focused in on making as much money as they can they could and having work. Like so Stan wanted work more than he wanted ownership. And the laws were set up at that time where the company owned the copyright. So Stan could be the voice of Marvel and was paid as a voice actor. Or when he wrote comic books, paid as both writer and editor, but was not paid as an owner of those franchises, which is, you know, for him, <laughs> a very bad, you know, a bad deal. But it was the same with Jack Kirby. It was the same with Steve Ditko, these famous co-creators who were the actual artists that drew and helped write those characters. So there's been a lot of controversy, especially since Marvel has become so huge about all these old creators, all these older, great historical figures in comic books that didn't really get their just due. And, and some of them died quite, quite poor, you know, not, not in good circumstance. So it is very sad. It's, it's not as if Marvel set up a, a fund for retirement for older creator. And so it's kind of like the sports leagues used to be. Once you were retired, once you were out of the game, you're out. You're left to fend for your own, on your own device. But, um, you know, some of the, there have been later generations of comic book creators who try to help out their predecessors. So there is some of that now, but not in any way that would give them a living wage. So let's go back a step or two before we get to the end of his life. Let's go to the beginning of his life. How does a kid from New York get started in this huge industry that made him millions and millions of dollars? Like so many stories about Stan Lee, they're apocryphal. There are kind of the legends that have grown up, and then there are legends upon legends. But Stan was a diehard New Yorker. He grew up in the in the lean streets during the Great Depression. He went to DeWitt Clinton High School. 
His family was poor. He didn't have the money to go to college. In fact, his mother jumped him ahead grades so that he could graduate early to make money to help the family survive. Yeah, go to work because it's, um, you know, it's the late 30s. And, um, you know, it's one of the amazing things about American history. We don't fully realize the depths of the Great Depression. No matter how bad we can imagine it, it was much, much worse. And so there's no college in his future, but he's really bright. And he's written a little bit in high school. He's he's done a little bit of acting. He thinks that he wants to be an ad man or be a lawyer or maybe an actor, but he kind of stumbles through a family connection into what was would later become Marvel Comics. And this was, depending on who you listen to, he was either 17 or 18 years old. So he comes into comic books when comic books um, are just starting to become super popular, like Captain America is just debuting. He falls in. Yeah, yeah, they really are. And he falls in under the mentorship of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, who created Captain America. And Captain America almost immediately, this is a couple years after Superman. So Superman set the bar. It's brand new, essentially. Then Captain America comes in. And the first issue of Captain America, Captain America is a big right cross to Adolf Hitler on the cover. And this is before America enters World War II. So great to your point, Cooper, like the, the internet, like this is the cutting edge entertainment of the day, even though people are loving movies in the 30s. I mean, the, the number of people that went to see films in the 30s is ridiculous. I mean, we can't even make a comparison today. Um, so he gets in under the mentorship of these two, but they're secretly moonlighting for what was then DC com, you know, the famous um, disparity between Marvel comics and DC comics. They're moonlighting because they're unhappy that Martin Goodman, the owner of Timely Comics, which would become Marvel, is not paying their full royalty rate because it was all these kind of crooked businessmen who ran comic books at the time. So they're moonlighting. They eventually got caught. And when Martin Goodman and the, his, his brothers who ran the company looked around, Stan Lee was the only one left. So they basically said, kid, you're the editor. Yeah, it's an amazing story. So 17, 17, 18 years old, he's been in comics for about a year. He's done some comic book writing, not a lot, developed some characters, and then they hand it over to him. And I mean, those of us who worked in magazines, and you all know Rick Radio now, could you imagine like you hand over the the general managership or the, you know, the top dog position to a 17-year-old who's yeah, he's essentially, he was for a long time, Simon and Kirby's glorified intern. Like he would, he would erase pencil, um, stray pencil marks and go get them lunch. And so he's, he just stumbles into the position and he was so creative and so good at it that they were like, hey, this, this guy's got a knack to keep him. And he, and he basically keeps that job into you know the the eight the the eighties nineties you know so he's 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 doing this job forever so when Stan Lee kind of hits the big time in the early sixties with Spider Man first with Fantastic Four with Spider Man then later the Avengers Thor Hulk 
We view him historically as kind of this overnight sensation, but he was, he was already close to 40 at the time. He had been working in the industry for decades. So he's like that, that the other side of the stick, that, that overnight sensation that's actually been doing the work for, you know, decades. Yeah. And what's your theory behind why he made all of these strong, powerful superhero type characters? Like, where did that come from? So this is a guy who clearly couldn't go to college based on circumstances, but he, he was genius level IQ and had amazing um, intellectual capabilities. Like when he went into the army, you kind of took it, you took a test to see where you were placed and the very best recruits went into the signal corps and Stan Lee was put right into the signal corps. So he's a guy who clearly like, like a F Scott Fitzgerald, just like Fitzgerald flunked out of Princeton. Hemingway never went to college. Like there was just something, there were certain people back then who were you know, beyond belief intelligent. And Stan Lee had that. Now, I've studied a lot of people from that era. I've talked to some people who were actually alive in that era, a little bit younger than Stan Lee would be. But it's that influence of movies. So the combination of being very well read and all the swashbuckler movies, like all great classics, all if we, you know, we don't like to talk about Errol Flynn too much. And he's, you know, he's been he's been um, He's been canceled. Yes, Errol Flynn would not do well in today's world, and he and we're not really supposed to talk about. It. But back then, he's the you know he's Tom Cruise and Arnold Schwarzenegger times ten in terms of his popularity, and and even kids who were poor somehow were able to scrounge up, you know, ten, for ten cents you could see an entire day's worth of movies. I was talking to. Um, a, a writer I really admire who lives in the West Village named Jerome Charon. And he's in his early 80s. And he was talking to me about the influence of movies back then. He told me that basically for a decade, from the time he was about 16 or 6 to 16, so this would be the mid 30s to right after World War II, he saw every single film made, every single film that was put out. Because for 10 cents, it didn't even cost him that much. That's the amazing thing. It cost him like a quarter because you could just sit in and keep watching movies all day. And people were so enthralled. You know, imagine a world before a world before television. You don't have this in your life every day. Movies were the thing and the, the grand movie palaces. So I think I mean, that's something I bring out in my Stan Lee biographies that I think I, what I want is for people to get a sense of who he really was. And so you might want the swashbuckling kind of perspective. You might want to see or think about him in cameos. But this guy who's creating his nose to the grindstone, running a magazine, then moving up in the company and um, running, you know, uh, you know, different kind of coloring books and like trying to get Marvel into the movies, which, you know, he totally failed at, but kind of set the stage for what's happening now. His life was so grand in so many ways, but he fought hard and he fought hard in a discipline that was completely, it's not like we feel about children's lit authors now, you know, we put them up on a pedestal, we give them awards. People who wrote comic books were looked down on. You're like, you'd walk across the street if you saw Stan Lee coming. It was not, you know, even though they're selling tens of millions of comics a month, nobody cares. Like they look down on him. So 
he he stuck with it and he had a love for Marvel. And that's, you know, beside the point of saying he becomes, you know, the face of the comic book industry from the mid 60s through the end of his life and probably still is today. I mean, I don't know outside of a character if a if a person just off the street could name anybody else in comic books. Like you wouldn't know a single name. You know the characters and Stanley and that's it. So I what I hope to do is bring that full life to to the the to print so that readers can learn about American history. It's almost like using Stan as a lens to understand the last hundred years. That's the cultural. So Anthony, that's the cultural history part of, of my title. It's it's basically, I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version. It's taking a topic and then looking like a 300, like a full circle around the topic to find out what were all the things going on, what were all the influences and what were all the consequences. So to me, that's why Stan Lee is so important. Even, even if he doesn't deserve full credit, if he only deserves half credit for creating Spider-Man, like that's fine. He voiced that character. And when you watch a Spider-Man film now, or you watch um, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man and you hear that voice, you know that voice is Stan Lee's voice. And that's been incredibly influential throughout American culture. Like pop culture today, there are few voices that we recognize instantly. And Stan Lee is one of them. You can you can go to any line by any of the Spider-Man movies and just listen to the line and you can imagine Stan Lee saying that line. So it's... Um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing life, and and so to celebrate it now that he would have been hundred this year, um, is really been a, a fun journey for me. And there's two versions of this book: the adult version and now a YA version. Why? Why did you do a second version of it? In all the books that I've written, I've never had a reaction like Stan Lee with the the Stan. So the first Stan Lee book comes out in 2017. So. I knew Stan Lee's 100th anniversary is coming up and it's COVID and I'm like, so I say to my publishers, we got to put out a, a centennial edition. I'll strip that first version down to basically like the studs that you would do in like a house remodel. I'll beef it back up, rewrite it, add all the new stuff that I find. It'll be essentially a new book. Well, parents, teachers, and teenage readers had been like basically bugging me, but in a good way, like saying, please write a book for us. So, because the, the first version and the adult version, you know, it's not, it doesn't emphasize the same kind of points that a, a young adult reader might be interested in. So I said to my publisher, Roman and Littlefield, let's redo this book. I'll, I'll redo the whole thing specifically for, I mean, younger kids can read it, but it's really for, you know, teenage years. We'll, we'll go get a comic book artist and we'll illustrate, we'll have that artist illustrate scenes from Stan's life, both real scenes and imaginary scenes. And then we'll kind of beef up the, the number of photos and make them more representative of what was going on in his life. So for example, I have, an, I have um, a photo of the first short story that Stan Lee published, which was on Captain America which they used to put in comic books to get the discount rate through the mail. So you had to have these little 
1500 word short stories plopped in the middle of a comic book. And that was Stan's first, first publication. So I, I didn't make it a full graphic novel, but I kind of bumped up and added interesting things that young adult readers, because like my best friend from high school teaches high school history. And I have a lot of friends who are teachers, um, both social studies and language arts. And they complain that there is not a good enough good YA nonfiction. There's tons of fiction. We all know that. And, you know, for, for good and bad, I mean, m most of it's been great. It's been great in educating people about diversity, equity and inclusion, about belonging, about LGBTQ+. The same kind of thing doesn't really exist as much for YA. And so we created this in response to, I mean, it literally hundreds and hundreds of people said to me, please write this book. And if you get that kind of outcropping of interest, I mean, I'd be a knucklehead not to then do it. It's like, yeah, because I mean, I, I'm a, like a true Gen Xer. I want readers. I could like, I don't deal with money at all. Like I try not to even deal with my, my wife deals with all that stuff because she's much smarter than me. I just want readers. And if a lot of readers say to me and parents and teachers are saying, please write this book. I'm in like, you don't have to ask me, but they, they did. They kept asking me and it was COVID and it was lockdown. And so I'm like, I got, I have some time on my hands. I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing. Bob, thank you so much for your time. We don't want to give too much away because we want people to buy the books. Um, your latest book is called Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. You can get the two versions, the adult version and the YA version, wherever you get your books. And I'm hoping that you get lots of books. You know exactly where to go. Bob Batchelor, thank you so much. And now, without further ado, it's the Cooper and Anthony Show. She doesn't even go here. Kim Kardashian. Oh, God, I'm talking about Kardashian. Kim Kardashian, <laughs> Kevin Hart, and Sylvester Stallone. What do they all have in common? Um, hmm. Kim Kardashian, Sylvester Stallone, Kevin, and Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. Um, wow. There's so many. It's like a lot of things and then nothing at the same time. Um, yeah, you'll, you, you would never, ever guess what oh, they all have in common. Okay, do they all have Rottweilers? You would think it would be something crazy like that, but no, they're all getting fines for massive water waste. What? No way. Yeah, in LA, you if you waste or use way too much water, you get a fine. Right. Well, okay. So I'm <laughs> I'm not defending them because I think that's really shitty and <laughs> and they're celebrities, so so they should know better because they know that we're going to find out about it. But um so Kim Kardashian has four kids and the sisters are always there. So there's too many women there. And then Sylvester Stallone is he's divorcing his wife. That's a whole saga in and of itself, by the way, and it's about the Rottweiler. But he has like Four, four girls plus the wife. So there's women around all the time. Tons of water being used there. And doesn't Kevin Hart have a ton of kids too? Isn't he another one of those celebrities that has like lots of children? So I feel like that's shitty. They should not do that. There's plenty of celebrities with lots of kids that don't use too much water. So they should know better. But I'm just, I'm just saying I kind of understand how it happened. <laughs> all right. Well, using a lot of water is one thing. Kim has used over 232,000 gallons a month. What? That's not possible. She's used that much. Sylvester, he's 533% so 
over his allocated <gasps> budget of water. Are they watering their lawns and refilling their pools several times? I don't like, what know what the so this hell is this doing. is more than just showering and washing your hair. This is probably like they're doing stuff around the around their properties. Yeah, Kevin Hart, hundred and seventeen thousand gallons. <gasps> he is wasted. So they're giving them fines, which I don't think they all three of them could care less about the fine. Care less, yeah. Yeah, they're like, yeah, what is it? A couple hundred bucks, please. But yeah. They they're talking about putting something on their water to restrict it. Ah, that's what they should do. Yeah, a fine means nothing to a celebrity. I have one very very wealthy friend, and whenever he comes into the city to visit me, he always parks right in front of my building where it's illegal. They don't tow you there, but it's illegal, and you get a ticket. And he gets tickets all the time, but they're like one hundred twenty five dollars. He doesn't care. That's nothing to him. He's happy to pay it. He's mm-hmm. like, for the convenience of parking right in front of your building, I will happily pay $125. It doesn't happen every time, but a lot of times that he comes in, it happens, and he could care less. So it's not a deterrent when you have a lot of money. Well, Kim has paid a month 2300 bucks because she's going over her allotment of water. She makes that in a millisecond. I know, but that's still 2300 bucks a month in extra water. She literally has that in change in that little jar by the door. Oh, okay. <laughs> but some people don't make that, and that's how much she's spending over what she's supposed to. So they're talking yeah. about putting a device that automatically reduces water by 70%. Yeah, that's what they're going to have to do with those three. And celebrities like that who are coming, who are just walking up to the line, who are getting too close to their allotment. Yeah, I, I'm all for that. Can you imagine being a multimillionaire and going into the shower and it's just dripping <laughs> because they right. cut your water by 70%? Yeah, well, listen, she's going to go to her sister's house and start showering there. I can't. See, I knew celebrities wasted a lot of things. I didn't know. 200,000 gallons a month. That's well, like Kim seven is, swimming pools. Yeah, but Kim is always out there taking all those photos. Like, she spends her day just getting all dolled up with the glam squad and then taking a million photos. And I've seen the ones where she's, like, wet and they've thrown water at her and they have water going. Not so 200,000 gallons. That's what I'm saying. It must be. <laughs> 200,000 gallons she went over. Yeah, it's a lot. I, I believe me. I understand that it's that's a lot. That's ridiculous. They should the fine means nothing. I think you're right. I think what they should do instead is to put some sort of uh, filter on there so that they get to a certain limit. That's it. You're cut off. Yeah, I I think back to when I fly in an airplane and I look out and I look down and there's all these little cars and people walking around mm-hmm. and we are just a virus on this planet. We are. We're like ants. <laughs> okay. But she's like an ant that wastes a shit ton of water. <laughs> she's a virus. She's number one in the celebrity, you know, wasting of water. And it's just her. Wow. Yeah. You're right. Because it's just not enough. You can't take that many showers. It's probably not the showers. It's probably what they're doing on their property and the swimming pools and the whatever requirements she has for her 
landscapers to take care of her property. It, it has to be that. She just goes like- out there and sprays it into the air. I don't know what you do. How do you waste that much water? I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I gotta tell you, they're not drinking it because her skin lately has been looking really, really dry. Oh, and she ain't drinking out of the tap anyway. No, that's a good point. Right? Yeah. She's buying that water. I mean, she, she's point. buying Fiji water, so she ain't drinking that. She's just... It doesn't make it just boggles the mind. Maybe it was Pete Davidson. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, people have said that while he's got the BDE and all that stuff, he's not very clean. Maybe she just like hosed him off every single day for the past six months and it took 200,000 gallons to hose him off. That makes sense because he <laughs> is one of those people you would think, yeah, he needs to be washed off. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, that's that's where the water went. You'll you'll see now that she, now that she broke up with him, she'll go back to normal. Back for next gallons. Yeah, for next month it'll be fine. She'll be she'll be down ten thousand gallons in a month. They'll owe her money by yeah. the month. Ah, that's insane. They're not freaks. They're people just like you and me. You're right. It's the Cooper and Anthony Show. You guys suck. We wanted to make sure that we had on our good friend, Dr. Diane Madfiz. And in case, I'm sure you've heard her a million times, but in case you haven't, in case you're just meeting her for the first time, she is a board-certified dermatologist. Uh, she runs Madfiz Aesthetic Medical Center in Manhattan. Correct. She's a renowned skincare doctor, expert, loads of celebrity clientele because they know she's the best. You've seen her on TV. She's a published author. But more importantly, she is our friend. Aww. Dr. Madfees, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, Cooper, thank you for having me. I love coming on the show and what we talk about. It's always so relevant and people are interested and it's active. I love it. Thank okay, you. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that because I have two questions for you today. That's going to, I hopefully, hopefully they'll take up the whole show. But my first question just quickly, this is something that went viral, and I thought of you immediately. There was, uh, so on Reddit, this woman asked a question to um, the Am I the Asshole? I don't know if you know that one, but that's I one do. of my... Yeah, I Yeah, okay, that's it. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good subreddit. So she said, um, so I go with my 17-year-old son to, with my husband, to the sister-in-law, brother-in-law, their children, we're all having a big dinner. So the sister-in-law says to her, um, you know, everybody wash your hands, get ready for dinner. But to her 17-year-old son, Adam, she says, everybody wash their hands. Adam, you wash your face. And Adam is like, what's that supposed to mean? And she said, well, you need to wash your face. You're very oily and it's just manners. Don't come to the table looking, <laughs> looking like a teenager, basically. So the mom stepped in and said that she told her sister-in-law that Listen, my son is seven, 17, he can manage his own hygiene, that oily skin, it's part of puberty, just, you know, deal with it, he's your, he's your nephew. They start arguing, the woman just says, that's it, we're leaving, the whole family leaves, and as she's leaving, the sister-in-law says, you're raising a dirty child. <laughs> that could have probably been said a little better. Yeah, I guess at that point they were arguing, so they kind of felt like an argument. You just want to say something mean to the person, you know, so she went with, you're raising a dirty child. But, okay, so I have several questions here. So, 17-year-olds, 
Are they always oily? <laughs> no, yes, is it normal? <laughs> At the end of the day, it is so normal for a 17-year-old to be oily. But guess what? They should be washing their face. So actually, I take side of the person whose house it was because I think she was just trying to help. I know with teenagers, and I take care of a lot of them with their acne because you intervene early with acne, you prevent scarring later. Mm-hmm. Number one, okay? So, I think the woman was trying to be nice and get a routine. So, I actually tell a lot of my teenagers that I love for them to wash their face before dinner because it incentivizes them. You're going to get compliance. It's a nice way you have to wash your hands anyway. And then you sit down and you're not going to forget. So, a lot of teenagers at the end of the night, they are too tired too Mm. busy or just don't care at that point to actually wash their face. So I take the side that she was doing a favor to her nephew to actually suggest that he wash his face. Now, I don't think the mom took it very well and might have been. Now, a couple things. Maybe he was really, really, really oily, which is why the aunt said something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this has been, I'm trying to be nice, but maybe there is an issue with this child because it is very hard sometimes to get teenagers to actually be aware of their face. Mm. And they're lucky I wasn't there because I probably would have said, you need to hop in a shower and wash your hair because a lot of the oils come down from the scalp. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so it's actually really easy for teenagers, and a lot of them are so busy with sports after school, or they've gotten up so early in the morning that you can actually shower before dinner. Then you get to wash your hair and your face at the same time. So I I don't know why this blew up on on Reddit, but I guess it's a sensitive subject for teenagers who are neglected or just don't feel like washing their face. I, I'm still trying to, to after 20 years, I'm still trying to figure that one out. But I find <laughs> if they get ready before dinner, it works. It Wait, really so if you does. have oily skin and you wash your face, no more oily skin? No, it's a, so that's so there's different ways to wash. You can exfoliate with a gentle cleanser and you can use a salicylic acid or benzoyl peroxide. Now, those you can use every day and you're not going to overly dry the skin. One of the problems with very oily skin is if you use too harsh, like charcoal scrubs too often or apricot hmm. or salt scrubs, you're going to actually strip away that top layer. So by stripping away that top layer, your body is then going to say, oh my God, I need to make more oil production. Hmm. So it actually then you get a counter stimulation of oil. Now we know that acne is not only about oil. It's about the bacteria that's sitting at the base of the glands. And a lot of acne is normal with elevated testosterone and and estrogen, but it also has to do with a genetic component. So people who have acne have an underlying, their sebaceous glands, which is the root of the acne, are actually a little larger than other people. So when they make a little more oil, you see a little more oil, and bacteria loves to sit at the base of the glands. There's so many different ways to treat acne. Oil is a symptom and you're like, oh, maybe the cleanser you're using isn't the right cleanser. And that's why you're seeing a little bit of an oil production. You also see about a spike about eight hours after you wash your face. So that's around the dinner time. So I, I kind of get the comment on that. Right, it's unappetizing to sit across from an oily face teenager. 
I, I, I think so, but <laughs> if it's good head. awareness, if it's good awareness for people to, to well, it depends what they're eating. Um, it, it, it's good awareness, though, for people to take care of their skin. And if this sets up a, a flag that we're like, oh my gosh, I have oily skin, maybe I should be taking care of my acne so I don't scar later, I'm actually happy for the conversation. Can you wash your face too much? Yes, you can overwash your face too much. But again, when you're a teenager, you're just pumping out so much of that oil production. Plus, a lot of people do sports after school or they will, mm. will, they will be wearing helmets or masks. Um, again, when, when we were all in our masks, you had to wash your face twice a day at least because the oils were getting captured underneath the skin. When the oil clogs, you get a folliculitis and then you get the little bumps and then you get the blackheads and the whiteheads and the pustules and it all starts a nice cascade. So it's so easy just to wash your face and then mm. there's so many good over-the-counter acne medicines these days. Adaptaline, you can get right in a pharmacy that used to be prescription. So if you put a little bit of that after you wash your face, you're good. There's always been the going back to acne, and I don't know why we're stuck on this, but you always say you shouldn't pick a pimple. Yes. How do you not? Ah ha. So if you're washing your face, you can actually leave a little bit of that foaming, say, salicylic acid or benzoyl peroxide on a little bit longer. The other way is oh my God, the beauty industry is so smart. They came up with acne patches. So what? If you have a, yeah, they're like little band-aids and they have acne medicine right in the middle of them. And you put them, um, peace to the people, has them, free to the people. And it's like a little patch and you just put it on top of the little acne bump. It camouflages it. And the acne medicine in there also helps treat the bump at the same time. Wow. Where do you get that? Is that something uh, prescription? At, or no, not? you can get them at Sephora. You can get them anywhere. You can get wow. them online on Amazon. It's like the greatest thing because I I get it. You feel the little bump. It's so easy to go there with your nail and just like pick it mm. off or get it flat or squeeze out the pus that's in there. But, you know, that causes scarring deep underneath the skin. And what mm. you're taking out is the top and the other half is underneath. And that's when you get the marks. And I'm not a big fan of the marks. So instead, if you put this little patch on, it camouflages, it keeps your hands off of it. And they'll mm. also flatten it in about 24 hours. Wow. You know, speaking of, because you mentioned Amazon products, you know, I, I noticed that a lot of my a lot of my Real Housewives that I watch, they all wear those patches under their eyes, and somebody bought me a bunch of them. You know what I'm talking about? Like so a football it's just like, player? It's like, yeah, like a football player, Like, but it's it's gold, and it's got moisturizer of some kind ah, in it. So, so actually, the one you're talking about, well, there's a lot in gold, but uh, Peter Thomas Ross's gold eye patches are the ones that I like a lot. And oh, they're all... Okay. They're, that's probably what you got because it's an amazing product because they're hyaluronic acid based. So what happens is you're forming a layer of hydration when you put those patches on. And after about 15 to 20 minutes, most of the patches are dried out mm -hmm. and the benefit you would have gotten from the hydration is gone. So if you think about, let's go back to like a bathtub when you're taking a bath and you know when your fingers get all wrinkly, mm -hmm. you know you've gotten enough hydration in your skin. So that's about 15 minutes. So when you put these patches under your eyes and you should always put it on clean skin and it's just an extra boost of the hyaluronic acid. Some of the patches are infused with other things. You can have some vitamin C in them, you can have peptides and growth factors, stem cells. And what those do is it's going to boost your collagen and help with a little bit of the wrinkling underneath the eyes. 
So the question is, when do you want to use this? So I think it's good to put it on if you're going out, before you're going out at night. Because okay. then you can plump it up and make it look better and then put your makeup on, moisturizer, and just go. A lot of people will do it in the morning. That way mm -hmm. they look all refreshed. But I think anytime you want to take the time to sit down and do it, you're going to be happy. Okay. I was doing them in the morning, and those are the ones I use, the ones, the Peter, whatever ones that you said. Yeah, they're um, nice. Listen, it's no secret that celebrities have products they want us to buy. That's been going on forever. But lately, there's been like a rash of them, and some of them are really bizarre. So I want to talk about celebrity skincare products because it's it's sort of alarming. Okay, let me just give you an example. I'm not going to go through all of them because there's just too many. But so there's, of course, like, you know, Rihanna has Fenty skin, which I'm fine with because that whole Fenty line has been really terrific. JLo Beauty has a whole routine. Like you buy 17 products and you do each one in a row. Alicia Keys has an exfoliator. Jessica Alba has serums, moisturizers, and cleansers. And this is the one that really blew me away. Millie Bobby Brown from, she's 11 from Stranger Things. <laughs> she launched a skincare line with masks and washes and exfoliants. She's but, like 14 years old. Right, that, right. I think it's for teenagers. But celebrities are not, they're not experienced dermatologists like you are. What do, what do consumers do? What should they look for? Do you buy a product as a celebrity? Celebrity tells you to. I don't okay. get it. So let, let's back up because the explosion is unbelievable. Like yeah. you name the celebrity, they have a product. So why is it that everyone has moved into skincare? And so a lot of them have struggled with, say, skin problems over time, and they wanted a better answer. But I, I, you have to you, you have to take a step back because many people have beautiful skin anyway, and then they started their line. Like for example, J Lo. I mean, her skin is just stunning. It's flawless. And her skincare yeah. line, which has a lot of research and it has a lot of ingredients in it, is is a very good line. But you have to say, okay, number one, why is a celebrity launching the skincare line? Did they have skin problems? Now are they fixed? And who are they launching the line with? So mm. there are so many reputable chemistries and companies and labs out there that actually make beautiful products. It's the, the problem comes down to testing. So you can have on a piece of paper a formula and a lab will make it for you. But the question is, is it going to be non-irritating? Is it going to be safe? How long is the shelf life? Is it really going to do what it's going to do? So when you look at a lot of the larger skincare companies, the amount of R&D that they put into development and testing and safety is so huge. So I do question a lot of these celebrity brands for their efficacy and if they're really going to help or really not going to do anything. I, I must say though that I find it fascinating that they find a niche, okay? So for example, you know, Jessica Alba, she wanted clean products. You know, what am I going to use in my children and things? So the, the thought behind why we need it is a fabulous one. The mm. question is, are these products really, really delivering? So when you think about Gwyneth Paltrow, when she went with the whole goop thing, it was more of the wellness and, and the whole everything else relating, and the products were okay. So the No, message, they were terrible. Well, I'm trying to be nice and diplomatic. Not and me. I don't need to be nice. because Gwyneth. the goop. I, I, it, well, it, really, it pisses me off because everything that she puts out, she's like, this is to get rid of toxicity. I've yeah. spoken to many scientists and many people like yourself. And what 
uh, there's no such thing. Like we're right. not walking around with with toxins all over no. our faces and in we're, our bodies. It's we're yeah. actually well, we are. We we ingest a lot of toxins, but I, I actually think that if the R and D's there, it's awesome. But a lot of times the R and D is not there, not and the there. testing is not there. And you know, you can give a product to ten people and say, "Well, what do you think?" And if nine out of ten like it, then ninety percent of the people who use this product mm. love this product. Mm, so okay. you know, it's it's an accurate ninety percent. Granted, so you may want to ask the company, "Well, what's your sample size? Okay, what parameters did you use? Did you use anything objective?" When we do clinical studies on topicals and different lasers systems or whatever we might be doing, we look at, at hard solid data and there's a Visio system where you can take photos and you can also do 3D and, and you can actually measure the depth of a wrinkle. Wow. So if you're using a cream and then and all creams take at least a month to start working guys, don't even think earlier. There's mm -hmm. different components to a topical. So when you do your skin studies, you'll look at a month and then you'll look at three months later. And you can actually measure, is this wrinkle um, not as deep? You can also test the brown, what level of darkness in the skin. And if someone has all these spots over and you want it to be nice and um, a little less spotty, then is there less brown now? So they're really objective measurements that a lot of these companies are just not using. It's, hmm. um, and the question is, do they really need to use it? Because a lot of them have, you know, wonderful skin, wonderful makeup. They have their right. chef, they have their personal trainer. You know, it's not just about what you're putting on your skin. It's, it's everything else that's involved. Um, but on the flip side, when you do look at some of these celebrity lines, like Victoria Beckham's beauty line, mm -hmm. you know, that is a really good line. And when you look at the people who are running that line, she just hired someone, um, uh, Katie uh, Beechamp, who was at Birchbox, who created that. And those oh. was the initial sampling where they sent products to people's homes so they could play around with it. So it was a fabulous way to get products into people's homes and now she's working with them and they have a wonderful lab. So originally they worked with Estee Lauder. So you know they have the R&D. So when you're looking at these celebrity products, you might wanna say, well, who's actually formulating them? Where is it coming mm. from? And you know, is it a clean beauty or not? That's the new the new hot word. And you're looking at less preservatives and, but you, you need something in there to stabilize a product. Otherwise it, it gets all gross and gritty when you put it on, it smells. And um, I'm making um, a face because just cause something's natural and clean doesn't mean it's actually really good or is, is gonna help. So my recommendation is that if you have a celebrity line that you do a little research, a little digging and see who's formulating and where it's coming from and you want to try it, then that's not such a bad thing. You also look, have to look at the price range on it. Mm. Um, so if it's really, really, really inexpensive, I, I inexpensive, I think, and it's a small, a small label, meaning they don't have many products, they don't do much production. You have to question, well, how are they able to do it so inexpensive? So a lot right. of the larger mass market brands, they're able to have high quality, inexpensive products because it's such a vast number that they're making. Right. So for them, you know, that part works out pretty well. 
What's the best line that we should all buy and just spend the money? And it's like the splurge. What's the what's the big splurge? Oh, the big splurge is still skin suiticals. Wow. You know, they're made by L'Oreal, and they're really stringent with their clinical tests. Really, really stringent. So they're not doing the ten people and nine people are happy, and you get your ninety percent. Um, I I love companies that look at actually skin biopsies. So you can take a piece of skin and stain it under a microscope, and you look at the collagen, you look at the elastin, you look at the support tissue, um, all the things that clinically, when we use products on our skin, make us look better. You can see it in in a microscope, so you can play with it and and. Other companies, you know, the nice part is that it's getting easier to get high quality products from the labs because the demand is there. And then, you know, technology keeps improving. So we, as a consumer, we get to benefit from that as well. Hmm. And what about for men? Because so many of these products that we're talking about, it, they're all geared towards women. They're in like little purple or pink or cute little packaging. Are there, I don't know if there's any male celebrities out there. Must be. Um, what about like for someone like Anthony, you know, an old man like him who's, look at his skin. He needs some help. <laughs> yeah, oh, see, that's, that's your skin right there that's just, just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony's telling me I'm uh, number one. Uh, no. I'm, I'm, so, this is my pet peeve because a man doesn't need to use a man product and it kind of pisses me off when you look at all those men branding with all the products and the tubes and everything and they're all like with black or dark blue and they're, they're supposed to be manly packaging it doesn't change what's inside the product right okay so and brands have launched men products Mm -hmm. They don't go over very well. If you look statistically, the men are going to use um, a lot of the products of, say, someone that they're dating. Whether it be a man or a woman, they're still going for the, the products that you hear a lot about. Um, you know, the SkinCeutical line, the Senti line. Um, you mentioned Peter Thomas Roth. I mean, these are all really high, good lab products. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know if you want to close your eyes and, and reach Anthony and, and grab a, a bottle and <laughs> grab the pink bottle instead of the black bottle and put that on my face. No, with a with a guy, we're lucky if we get past soap. I disagree with you. That may be how I'm it sorry. Used to be. In, in this conversation, I'm the one with the penis. So <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> so you can't say men. No, no. I'm telling you, okay. if it's more than soap, I don't want to use it. So what if we give you a soap that does a couple different things? Then maybe. So a lot of moisturizing. Ah, ah there's soaps that actually leave moisturizing behind. Mm-hmm. So that would be my choice for you. Although you're still gonna have to put your sunblock on in the morning. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I never. And I was. Uh, it was funny. I was speaking with a guy today that works outside, and I never put it on. He's he never puts it on. Oh. And was, was was he in a hat at least and sunglasses? No. Oh. oh. Okay, you just stabbed me in the heart. It kills me. I know, me so too. Much- you've got, it's yeah, you've got me in such a. I think it's going to break my skin out. That's why I don't use it. No, so they're using we- the wrong. You're using the wrong product. Then there's-, there's tons out there that are not greasy. Oh my gosh, there's so many. There's gels formulations. There's powder formulations. There's zinc spray formulations. 
Sorry, you gotta come up with a better reason. Yeah, it, my it, boyfriend uses a powder. He has got a powder one that he just mm. puts on. Yeah, yeah, they're great. The powder one, the brushes, they're so easy. You twist them, the little thing comes out two seconds. Simple. And really, really simple. Mm. I just think, I, you know, maybe it's more of an awareness thing, Anthony. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, because bit. every every one I've tried in the past, it's left my skin oily, and I just I just pff, not gonna even bother with it. That's because you're really seventeen and you just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, true, but I, I'm the age I am, and I still get acne, and I don't know why that is. I think the wrinkles should squeeze the pimples by now. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't. So I'm, I'm afraid to put anything greasy on my skin. Yeah, you're you're a perfect brush person. But you should be using at night some kind of salicylic acid or glycolic acid. Mm -hmm. um, La, Ro La Roche Posay actually makes a, and these are just products I like, guys. That's all mm -hmm. this is. Right. Um, La Roche Posay makes their product called Effaclair, and it's a medicated gel cleanser. It's actually really good for men because, you know, you have extra hair follicles on your face. So at the base of the hair follicles are sebaceous glands. So you are, you do have more of an oily presence. So if you're using a gel, gel will actually, when you massage it on the face, it lifts up the hair follicles so you you actually get better oil control and then it's also got a little bit of a lactic acid in it which will help with your breakouts so hmm. i think your mindset if it changes a little bit like oh my god there are these new products out there that i can cleanse with and actually get my acne better at the same time may be a good way to start and then if you want to close your eyes and pretend it's got black it's okay. <laughs> can, can I put it in a dark blue bottle? <laughs> and then I'll use it. No, so I have to go. So what? what's my next step? If I want this, do I have to go no, to the doctor? Go, go, no, you go to a pharmacy. Yeah. Go anywhere. They're right over the counter in pharmacy. CVS. Yes, yes. Walgreens. You name it. Yeah. Hmm. Never knew. Yeah, we just saved your skin, and uh, we saved you a ton of money right there. Oh, my gosh. You just said so much. And, you're, and we're going to clean up the acne a little bit, too. Uh, and last thing. So what is something um, that is going on in your industry right now that's brand spanking new that we should all know about? Um, two things, actually. One is... There's a new laser for acne, it's called Abiclare, and the laser targets sebaceous glands specifically. So when I mention laser, whenever you're using a laser, you're targeting something. Are you targeting a red spot? Are you targeting a brown spot? Are you targeting a wrinkle? Are you targeting fat? What are you aiming at? So never before has there been a laser that just targets the sebaceous glands, which is the where the acne comes from. Wow. So it is, uh, I mean, it's a life changing because a lot of the medications work very well but because of side effects, some people can't take them. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to have one treatment a month for three months and then it controls your acne for one to two years, like 80% of decreased breakouts, I mean, that's a pretty big wow. deal. Yeah, so it's new technology. You know, we've been studying it for about three years. So um, we will see the long-term results. But so far, we've been using it in my office um, since the start of the summer. And it's been a godsend and helping people. Um, it, it does, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's quick. It's, it's, it's a really quick treatment. It's just a half hour. But um, they're doing great. So 
the fact that I can offer a laser hmm. for specific for acne right is, I'm I'm just so you you it's amazing have no idea yeah I've been watching this it got FDA approved back in February and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and my patients are so happy now wow which is yeah awesome. that's a game changer for sure you said there was a second thing yes the second thing has to do with hair loss and I don't know if you saw the New York Times article about uh, minoxidil the pill it was just in the New York Times two weeks ago mm-hmm. and it's like inexpensive way to treat hair loss for pennies well okay lots of side effects with that medication and the the medication itself is the one that's in minoxidil which is the over-the-counter the Rogaine that people mm-hmm. use on their skin so everyone's probably heard of Rogaine yes but the article talked about well, why don't people just take the pill so it's not quite that easy because there's some cardiac side effects and there's um, blood pressure changes and things it's a fabulous pill but hair loss itself is a blossoming blossoming field and the reason I'm saying that is because a lot of people unfortunately this is where we are right now um, when people were ill with COVID there's a little bit of hair loss with COVID itself okay Mm -hmm. so there's been a lot of research and a lot of people trying to figure out ways well how can we get people's hair to grow back faster and this affected millions of people so besides vitamins and besides, um, there's something called PRP, where we drop people's blood and we spin it down and then we re-inject the platelets with growth factors back into the scalp. We also use something called exosomes injection, and we also use something called Carifactor. And they're all growth factors to boost one's own hair growth. We mm. still cannot, we still can't clone hair. Right, right. Still can't do that. <laughs> One day, but probably not in my lifetime. But um, at least we're getting better with this hair loss problem. And wow. then there's also on the market a lot of new LED, which are the lights. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've seen them. Some of them work well, some of them don't work well. But the bottom line is the combination of hair vitamins and these new injectables. Mm-hmm. You can actually help people regrow their hair. And it is wow. very, very upsetting to people, male and female, as your yeah. hair starts to thin. Right. So. This whole segment has been an intervention for me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Diane, she's, he's on to us. I got it, I got it. I got Diane, you got to come on and talk about hair loss, okay? What about oily skin and, and no. acne? Okay, yeah, come on in. Yeah, thanks. Do you feel special? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right, so for more information, go to Madfee's Derm at, on uh, Instagram, M A D. F-E-S-D-E-R-M that's on Instagram or dianemadfees.com for more information there or to uh, you know find Dr. Diane and maybe she can help you